Welcome to episode number three. In this episode, I speak to Simon Lamb, who produced the documentary Thin Ice, which is about the science behind climate change. Simon has a PhD from Cambridge University. He worked at Oxford University for 22 years, and currently he teaches geophysics at Victoria University of Wellington. He's been involved in a few BBC science documentaries and has written two books about geology. This episode of the Green Podcast is the longest one yet, and I'm not going to be able to give a thorough summary of it here, but a few of the things that Simon explains in our discussion are how many different branches of science all contribute to climate change research, how carbon cycles through the Earth's systems, of which the atmosphere is just one, and how the greenhouse effect works probably in more detail than you've heard it explained before. Simon also explains some of the ways that as a society we may be able to reduce our carbon emissions, such as how we may be able to continue to burn fossil fuels, but in such a way that no carbon is released into the atmosphere, as well as other potentially viable power sources like tidal power and others. The Thin Ice film was released in 2013, and Simon and his team are currently running a fundraising campaign on Kickstarter to fund the editing that has to be done to broadcast the film on U.S. public television. So if you're listening to this before November 24th, 2014, which is their Kickstarter deadline, then please check out their Kickstarter campaign by doing a search on kickstarter.com for Thin Ice, or you can find the link on thegreenpodcast.com in the notes for this episode. You can also find all other episodes on thegreenpodcast.com as well as on iTunes. And now here is my discussion with Simon Lamb. Welcome to the Green Podcast. My name is Justin Clark, and with me is Simon Lamb, who is a professor of geophysics at Victoria University in well of Wellington. And he created a documentary about climate change called Thin Ice, which was released on Earth Day in 2013. Simon, welcome to the Green Podcast. Oh, well, thank you for um, inviting me to speak. Uh, great to have you. Uh, so what made you decide to create a film about climate change? This is a sort of a, a long answer and a, and a short answer, but basically I've you know, over many years been interested in public understanding of science and communicating my science. I'm, I'm actually a, a geologist. I'm not, I'm not actually a, a, a climate scientist. But I've been very um, keen to, to sort of communicate the earth scientists, sciences to as wide an audience as possible using film. Because I, I, when I was at university, I, I became fascinated with filmmaking and I was I actually ended up being president of the local uh, the student um, filmmaking society and made a number of films and a, a lot of the people I worked with went on to have careers in the media and I maintained links and so I actually over the years have had opportunities to make science documentaries at, at a professional level working with um, people who I knew from my student days. And what, one person in particular, David Sinkton, I've maintained a very long-standing collaboration with. And so we together we've made actually quite a few 
documentaries about the earth sciences, about 10, I think, prior to, to this one. And, but on a very wide range of topics, like, for instance, the, the first one we did was actually about why you have volcanoes on Earth. And then we did one about um, why and how mountains formed. And then we did a, a series on sort of all sorts of aspects of, you know, Earth sciences, evolution of life, plate tectonics, discovery of plate tectonics and things like that. Anyhow, um, I... Um, a colleague of mine at Victoria University, when I was on sabbatical in New Zealand, um, suggested making a, a documentary about um, the science of climate change. And, and at that time, it was, just, it was in two, late 2006, and it was just at the time when the sort of scientific consensus was really swinging around very strongly in um, favor of... Um, 20th century climate change being the result of human activity, basically emissions of greenhouse gases such as um, carbon dioxide. And it was something that um, the scientific community, you know, become, especially in the earth sciences, becoming very much aware of. But I, I felt that it was something that, um, and so certainly my colleague did here, that the wider public didn't really have a good feel for what scientists were actually thinking, you know, what the evidence was, why they were saying what they were saying. And we thought that, you know, a way of reaching a wide audience would be through a film. And of course, this was before Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth. We didn't even know about um, Al Gore, at least I didn't really know anything about Al Gore. And so we thought this was an incredibly novel idea. You know, nobody else had thought of presenting climate science as a film to a wide audience. And we managed to convince um, my university, which was Oxford University in the UK, and my colleague Peter Barrett's University in New Zealand, Victoria University of Wellington, to basically back this. And um, to, they did. And so we, so I basically um, took time off from my job in Oxford as a as a lecturer in earth sciences, basically on on, on had a um, a fellowship in communication of science to to make this film. And so, was it simply the fact that you were concerned that people did not understand climate change? Were you concerned that they were uh, misunderstanding it? Because I know climate change is one of the few areas of science where there seems to be a lot of controversy. Yes, I think that the um, my my feeling was that the public weren't hearing about um, climate change from the scientists themselves. They were hearing about it from lots of other people, you know, um, people in the media, policy makers, politicians, um, activists, you know, um, people in the green movement. All sorts of people um, were talking about climate change, but really they were, they were talking about it at second hand. And so the, the, the public weren't hearing what the scientists themselves who were actually researching, you know, how the, the history of the past history of climate on Earth and the physics of it, you know, what actually causes changes in the climate, what actually controls the Earth's climate. They, they weren't hearing about that from the people who really knew about it. And, 
And so I felt that it was a sort of, it wasn't really a proper debate. It was a sort of a debate a sec of people arguing about things that they'd heard secondhand. You know, it's a bit like, um, you, you probably don't have in America, but in Britain, you know, you, people go down to their local pub and have a drink and then talk about all sorts of things. And if you are often, you overhear conversations that, that most of them are talking absolute nonsense, um, sort of um, half-baked understanding about, you know, whatever it is they're talking about. And I felt that the sort of the whole climate change debate was a bit like that, you know, people arguing about things. But actually what they were arguing about were not actually the things that the scientists themselves were talking about uh, or saying. And so um, it just didn't seem very helpful. And, and I think I also felt very strongly that if, you're, if you want to convince people that you know, there is a, a problem and also to, to deal with that problem, people are going to have to change the way they do things. Basically, society is actually going to have to change in possibly in quite significant ways. You've got to explain properly what the problem is you know people aren't stupid that, that it's just that um if a lot of people don't have the information and so it's not good enough which is what was happening at that time and, and actually it's still happening to a certain extent that politicians and activists say you know we've got this problem you know trust us you know we're human activity is causing a change in the climate you know don't you worry about why we think that and you know it's probably too complicated for you to understand you just have to trust us and then what you this is what you've got to do it, it just doesn't work and and that was very very obvious and so our project was really an attempt to sort of present the the, the information and understanding that scientists have and also try and um, let people have an idea of, you know, what sort of people, what are the people like who actually study our planet's climate, and how do you actually go about studying it? That's another thing. You know, what do you actually do if you want to actually study what controls the climate or how it might have changed in the past or how it might change in the future? What do you actually have to do? And it was that sort of basic information and understanding that I felt was very suitable for a film, because you sort of had a chance to meet the scientists and, and sort of be with them, you know, follow them into the field or into their laboratories and get them to really talk to you, you know, a, a member of the public, as though they were just talking to a colleague. But, you know, but of course, one in, in making the film, I was very careful that everybody spoke in a way that was very clear and easy to understand, you know, didn't just sort of lapse into scientific jargon <laughs> that nobody could follow. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, in the film, you did speak to scientists from, from different, brand, different branches of science. Well, what, that one of the things that really struck me once I got involved with this is what a broad subject it is. I mean, it embraces actually... A, a huge range of scientific disciplines. You know, it includes basic physics, ocean studying the oceans, oceanography. They're biologists, they're geologists, um, atmospheric physicists, atmospheric chemists. You know, it's a huge range of people um, thinking about this problem and and approaching it from slightly different angles and perspectives. And that's really to me, what makes the conclusions 
so powerful and convincing is that at the end of the day, they're all saying essentially the same thing. They've all approached this problem from many different angles and um, sort of studied it in, in different ways with different types of information. And they're all, come, they're all saying the same. At the end of the day, they're all saying the same thing. And I think that's sort of what I hoped would sort of come over strongly in the film. If we can get into a little bit of technical detail, uh, yes, can you sort of just kind of give an overview of what is causing climate change? Well, I mean, basically, the the main um, effect that humans are having on the climate is that we're um, increasing the, the concentration of um, carbon dioxide. That's, that's actually the main way that we're influencing the climate. And, and is and that on, only through the burning of fossil fuels or... Mainly, mainly through the burning. It's a, um, we're also doing it through um, things like land clearance. You know, we're, we're cutting down forests. We're um, bur just in burning forests. You know, you're emitting a lot of carbon dioxide, but also you're taking away the capability of the surface of the Earth to actually take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and, and lock it back up in the solid Earth. So. Land clearance, and um, but mainly through burning um, oil and gas and coal, we, we are there's a sort of a one a bias towards um, releasing carbon, which is locked up in hydrocarbons, and turning re reacts with the, um, oxygen in the atmosphere, and you get carbon dioxide, and, and that stays in the atmosphere, and it, that wouldn't that wouldn't be such a problem. Um, in the long term, if um, there was there were processes, natural processes that readily took carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere, but in fact, all the natural processes are incredibly slow. You know, they're over time scales of um, thousands, tens of thousands of years or, or longer, where through um, biological activity and chemical reactions between the atmosphere and the surface of the Earth. Um, you can, as it were, reverse that flow of gas so that it gets locked up back in the solid earth again. So we, we're sort of, um, I mean, there, there, over um, geological time, there is um, a constant flow of carbon. You, you mentioned in your questions about the, the carbon cycle. I mean, carbon is, is a, a fairly abundant element, and it's... Um, stored on our planet in different places, like, for instance, in living organisms. We have lots of carbon in them. Um, there's a lot of carbon in the ocean as living organisms or at the bottom of the ocean as dead organisms. And there's also carbon deep in the, in the Earth as um, sort of dead organisms that have been buried and um, eventually um, turned into... Um, coal and oil. And um, there are also things like volcanoes um, naturally emit um, carbon dioxide, and so carbon which is coming actually from even deeper in the Earth, in the Earth's mantle, into, into the atmosphere. So there are these um, processes going on which um, cause a sort of a movement of carbon between different parts of the Earth. So, and the bulk of the carbon is in the solid Earth. Um, and a very, very small proportion of it's actually in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide and also as, as methane. 
And as I say, these um, fluxes between the different parts um, operate on geological timescales. It takes thousands or tens of thousands of years for a significant movement of carbon between these different areas. Well, what we've done is we've sort of, um, through our burning of, of fossil fuels, um, as it were, accelerated the flow of carbon from the solid earth to the atmosphere to a rate which is many, many times faster than the natural world would do. I mean, it basically, I would say that we're doing it probably uh, certainly a hundred times faster than any natural process would do it. So um, that's why, um, and, and, and so there isn't, there isn't any a process, natural process, that can take it out fast enough. And so that it's just accumulating. So uh, do, does that mean that if we were to totally eliminate our carbon emissions today, yeah. that we still have a problem, and the problem is, is going to take thousands of years to be rectified because it takes that long for all of the carbon that we've emitted already to be sucked back out of the atmosphere. Exactly. That, that, that's, that's the fundamental problem, is that even if um, society agreed overnight to admit no more greenhouse gas into the atmosphere, we are stuck with carbon dioxide there for thousands, I think hundreds of thousands of years at these very high levels. So just stay like that, because as I say, the natural processes are working. They're just too slow to change anything very much. And the reason, the carbon, that's with carbon dioxide, and that's why carbon dioxide is the sort of the real problem gas. The other gas um, is methane, and there are also other ones as well, um, that um, actually have much shorter residence times in the atmosphere, so that the natural, for instance, methane actually reacts with oxygen and um, doesn't stay as methane in the atmosphere very long. It actually only stays there for a few years. So if, if all we were admitting were methane, there wouldn't be a problem because all we do is we'd stop. And if we stopped for, say, two years, it would sort of essentially all have gone. But that's not the situation with carbon dioxide. But the, the reason that, um, that it's a problem having all this carbon dioxide in, in the atmosphere is that carbon dioxide is just through its shape. It's a sort of um, triangular molecule. So you've got carbon and two oxygens. And, and th that type of molecule is very, very good at absorbing um, energy at a particular um, types of energy called infrared, which is a sort of um, heat, basically what we feel as heat. You know, if you put your hand near a fire or a stove or an oven, and you feel warmth, what you're actually feeling is infrared being emitted by that stove. I mean, you can't actually see it. It's not, it's not visible, but it is actually light energy, it, which is not in the visible range. And um, the reason that we feel it as heat is that water is also a very good absorber of it. And so there's a lot of water in our body. So that infrared hits our hands, and then all the water absorbs it and becomes much more energetic and that um, registers to our nerves as basically feeling hot. And carbon dioxide is another one of these um, molecules that's um, very, very good at absorbing infrared. And the problem with infrared is that 
the, um, the, what controls the temperature of the planet is basically the sun. So the energy coming from the interior of the Earth is so small, it has very, no effect on climate at all. But the energy coming from the sun is huge, and um, and and so it's it's essentially the the, the heat the energy of the sun that keep that heats the outer part of the Earth. Now that the sun is shining all the time, and so the Earth is constantly receiving energy from the sun. And if that was all that was going on, the Earth would just get hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter because we're just receiving more and more energy. So what actually determines the temperature of the this outer part of the Earth, the atmosphere, basically what determines our sort of climate temperature, is the balance between the energy coming in from the sun and the energy that's being radiated from the Earth by the Earth itself. So what happens is the energy comes in from the sun, it's absorbed by the Earth, and then the Earth re-radiates that energy back out into space, but it re-radiates it as infrared so it absorbs it as visible light that we can see, but it actually um, re-radiates it as infrared. And, and the reason for that is that it's determined basically by um, the temperature of the outer part of the Earth. So the, the temperature of the outer part of the Earth is relatively cool, and cool bodies radiate in the, in the infrared. And... Um, but the amount of energy that it um, radiates depends on its temperature. So what happens is the Earth receives the energy from the sun, heats up, re-radiates that energy, and as it, um, as it heats up, it re-radiates more and more. And eventually, the outer part of the Earth gets to the temperature that's needed to radiate out into space exactly the same amount of energy that's coming in from the sun. And that um, is actually what determines, basically, the, the, the temperature, the, the energy balance of the Earth. And that temperature is actually um, quite low. It's surprisingly low. It's actually about, um, it's well below zero. It's actually roughly minus 20 degrees centigrade. And um, the that's, reason that's, that... Is that the average temperature of... Well, that's the temperature, basically, that the Earth needs to have to radiate out into space exactly the same energy that's coming in from the sun. Now, if there was no atmosphere and no greenhouse gases, then that would actually be the temperature of the surface of the Earth. So the, the, in, a, in a planet which actually has no atmosphere at all, it's just a solid rocky body, the Earth would actually be at minus 20 degrees centigrade or, or something like that. And then that would be in balance. But because we have an atmosphere and we have in the atmosphere um, um, molecules like carbon dioxide that can absorb um, greenhouse gases, the, the, the temperature is not actually the temperature of the surface of the Earth. It's actually the temperature of the upper atmosphere where this energy can get back out into space. And the basically... The, at the atmosphere has to be thin enough for this infrared to finally get back into space. And it, it's thin enough at about um, an altitude of about five kilometers. So if you, if you go up in an aeroplane, um, some aeroplanes have, you know, sort of, you can look at the 
temperature of the outside of the aeroplane. They have some sort of display screen, you know, in your entertainment panel. Um, you'll find that the, at the cruising altitude of an, of an aeroplane, which is about 10 kilometers, I think the outside temperature is about minus 50 degrees centigrade. You know, it's way, way below zero. But when you, as you come into land at an airport and you start lowering an altitude, you'll see that at about five kilometers, the outside temperature becomes about minus 20 degrees centigrade. And that's actually the level where the atmosphere, there is sufficiently small amount of greenhouse gases, such as carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, that the infrared, rather than just being absorbed by neighboring um, part, um, molecules of carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases, actually just goes straight out into space. And, and it's, it's minus 20. And basically, the um, atmosphere below that um, is warmer because what happens is that the um, because of and this is actually determined by gases that aren't greenhouse gases but the bulk of the atmosphere is actually nitrogen and oxygen and that's moving around in basically due to weather so you get great big um, um, upwelling of air which actually creates clouds and you get downwelling and you get winds and th that motion of the air actually results in a, um, the atmosphere getting colder as you go up, because basically as the molecules rise up, they expand, and as they expand, they cool. And so the, the weather in the atmosphere gives you a decrease in temperature as you go up. So the, the um, energy balance basically requires the level in the atmosphere where infrared can ex escape to space has to be at about minus 20. But for that level to be minus 20 and have weather, the, the lower parts of the atmosphere ha have to be much warmer, such that as the um, air rises up to, min uh, to five kilometers, it's at the correct temperature. And so basically, greenhouse gases allow, are like a blanket. They're exactly like a blanket around the planet. And so they allow the rocky surface of the Earth to be warm, but st the outer part of the blanket can be at the correct temperature to preserve the energy balance. So that's why they're so important, because they actually enable the surface of the Earth to be way above zero. And if they weren't there, the surface of the Earth would be minus, minus 20 degrees centigrade. And what we're doing by emitting all this carbon dioxide is we're making this blanket of greenhouse gases thicker. So as we add more and more carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, the, the blanket of greenhouse gases is getting thicker. And so that level in the atmosphere where the radiation can escape to space is getting higher. And as it gets higher, all the atmosphere, but its it, temperature mustn't change because it's got to be at minus 20 to preserve the energy balance. But that minus 20 is steadily moving up in the atmosphere. So, you know, what the level in the atmosphere, say, 100 years ago, that was minus 20, is slightly lower than the level in the atmosphere today. And for that um, minus 20 degree level to move higher up in the atmosphere, everything below must get warmer. So, so is it like that, that 20 degree level is moving up? Uh, so in other words, the blanket is getting thicker? Exactly. The blanket the minus below 20, that? Exactly. So the, 
So the blanket is getting thicker, and that means that the, the base of the blanket can be warmer than it was before. And um, basically, the, the gradient of temperature through that blanket stays more or less the same, because that's actually just determined by the motion of weather of rising and sinking of air masses. And so if you've got, you're basically trying to make the upper atmosphere warmer all the time by adding greenhouse gases because you've got to maintain the, the outside of that blanket has always got to be at minus 20 degrees centigrade to preserve the energy balance. And, but that, that, out, that top of the blanket is moving further away from the Earth. But it does, the thing is it doesn't have to move very far because if you, the, the, you know, the, the, the sort of temperature changes at the surface that people are worried about are only a few degrees centigrade, you know, like with the, the sort of general policy guideline is that we want, we don't want global warming to be more than two degrees above pre-industrial um, temperatures. Now, two degrees is actually, in terms of the atmosphere, not a very big warming because um, the, the temperature um, change in the atmosphere with altitude is roughly six degrees Per kilometer. So every kilometer you go up in the atmosphere, the temperature drops by roughly six degrees centigrade. So if you wanted to warm the surface of the planet by two degrees above what it is now, you only need to push the top of that blanket, of that greenhouse blanket, out roughly a third of a kilometer, which is roughly 300 meters. So, um, and I think you can imagine that you don't need a, a, a colossal amount of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere to push that blanket up by just a few hundred meters. And so the atmosphere is actually very sensitive to these changes because these changes are very small. And I think that um, that's really the problem is that life is actually, we and we life on Earth has evolved um, to a relatively restricted range of temperatures. And so life is very sensitive to what, from a sort of an absolute physical point of view, aren't very big changes in temperatures. So, you know, two degrees is not a big change for the planet, but it's a big change for us and because it has an, a big impact on the environment that we live in. And so, and I think that that's, a lot of the people who have sort of denied climate change, their stance has been, well, humans couldn't possibly affect the climate system enough to be significant. I mean, I think that's their sort of philosophical viewpoint, that, you know, there's nothing we could do that would actually be um, big enough to change the climate. But in fact, you don't need to change the climate very much. Uh, in fact, a tiny amount to have an effect, and we are certainly capable of doing that, as we've shown with our industrial activity. Mm -hmm. um, in the film, you talk to a variety of different scientists who are studying yeah. this, mm -hmm. uh, and we're not going to have time on this call to go into all of the you know, different branches of science, but one of the places you visited was the Arctic, yeah. uh, which I found pretty interesting. Can you explain what it is that they are doing there, what, what type of research? Well, the the trip to the Arctic was actually one of the very first things I did in the early, very early on in the in the project, 
And I was very interested. At that time when I went there, you know, it was um, known or talked about a lot in the media that this was one of the fastest, most rapidly warming parts of the planet. And so I was very interested to sort of to go there and see, well, okay, scientists say this is the most rapidly warming part of the planet. Do the people who live there, do they know, you know, could they tell? And I thought I saw this as a sort of test of really um, the robustness of the science, because if um, the people who live there could tell absolutely nothing, <laughs> you know, had no idea, then it made you wonder, well, perhaps, you know, is this really going on? But actually, it became very, very obvious that the people there absolutely know what's going on because it it impacts on their their world quite significantly because they basically live in a highly seasonal world where you move from um, quite moderately warm summers to very, very cold winters. And um, what they've noticed is that, for instance, winter is coming much, much later and summer is coming earlier. So it's the sort of shoulder seasons, really, of autumn and spring where you is what they really notice and um this this has um huge impacts because um the, the 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 their main type of um life up there traditionally has been reindeer farming and and reindeer farming is very tied in to the seasons and the the length and the nature of the um winters and um these changes are quite significant like for instance um, because you're getting a lot of warm spells in the winter, which you didn't normally get before, you're getting um, snow melts. So you get thick snow, and then you get a warm spell. The snow melts, and then it freezes again. And so what happens is the snow has these ice layers in it. So you And the reindeer can't get through the ice layers, because what they do in the winter is they kick the snow away with their hooves to get at the moss underneath the snow. And if you've got snow with ice layers in it, they can't get through the ice layers. Their hooves aren't strong enough for that. And so they can't get at the moss, and so they can't feed. And, you know, that's just one example of the way it affects them. Um, the other thing is that as it gets warmer, you actually find the trees are advancing northwards. So that what was tundra, say, um, 50 years ago, you're now getting, you know, um, birch forests moving up into it. And that, again, affects the sort of the, the landscape, the um, fauna, flora, and, and that's actually significant, again, for their, their way of life. So they, 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 have, they notice these things like anything. So that, that it was, you know, if you were, if you, uh, it was n no surprise to them, you know, uh, when we, I was talking to them, obviously through interpreters, some of them, um, you know, can you detect evidence of climate change? So sort of, of course we can, <laughs> you know. It was no, no surprise at all. <laughs> They they can see exactly what's going on. And that, and that really made me realize that um, climate change is not a sort of construct of scientists sort of making complicated measurements. You know, it's actually, it's something that everybody can see and um, observe. And basically, if people notice things, then it's happening. Right. You know, do you, that's, do you, that's do you rely experience. more on the evidence that is measured by scientists rather than kind of 
what you might call anecdotal evidence? Well, obviously, you can't. The trouble about the anecdote, I think the anecdotal evidence is important, but it's the, the if you're if you're actually trying to model the climate from a point of view of you know setting up computer models to um, compare the climate with the level of greenhouse gases, you need sort of quantitative measures and. Um, it's much more difficult to use anecdotal evidence. And so, I mean, one of the key measures that have been used for a lot of um, climate models is the average temperature of the Earth. And that obviously requires many, many measurements all, all, all over the planet. And then you look for trends in that. And but I think... Speaking of trends and, and, say, comparing the recent history of the Earth to the distant past... Yes. I, I think it was at one of... I don't know if it was the North or the South Pole... But you you talked to the scientists who were drilling ice cores. Yeah. Uh, how does that work? And or how does that help? What what information do they get from that? Well, the the thing about the ice cores is that the um, w one of the things that um, sort of rather su surprised me, and and it might surprise um, people in general, is that you know here we have this problem of global warming. And yet, really, the, the, the best place, in, in a way, to study it, it is the places, the coldest places on the planet, the places furthest away from what's warm. And the reason for that is that snow is an incredibly good recorder of weather, because basically, snow is just frozen water, and, and the water is basically condensed gas, water vapor in the atmosphere, but there, in that water vapor are all sorts of things that give you information about the climate, like for instance the actual detailed composition of the actual um, atoms that make up water, because they're different um, isotopes of, for instance, water is hydrogen and oxygen and the different isotopes of hydrogen and also of oxygen, um, can be used to calculate the actual temperature of the atmosphere where that snow formed and also you can look at other gases in the atmosphere that get trapped in that water and you can look at things like dust um, you can look at um, salt sea spray and all these things actually give you a measure of the um, temperature of the atmosphere how windy the atmosphere is um, and, and things like that and and all that is preserved in the snow. So basically by drilling down through the snow, and the snow forms annually, layer by layer, and over you know, decades it accumulates. And because Antarctica is so cold, that snow never melts um, in the um, high parts of Antarctica. So the record is not lost. So it's not as though you, know, you have a record and then in the summer it all goes. That record remains there. And so over... Um, decades, hundreds of years, thousands of years, in fact, you can go back nearly a million years, you've got almost year-by-year -year record of the temperature and aspects of the weather of the um, atmosphere, of the Earth, recorded. And so these, by drilling down into the snow, and as you go deeper, it gets compacted as ice, um, you extract these cores, and then what you do is you sort of slice up the cores like the sort of salami slicing, and you analyze the, um, the ice, the, the composition of the ice and anything trapped in the ice. And, and from that, you can reconstruct records of the climate back through time. So that's 
one aspect. So it actually gives you a very, very um, precise um, way of looking at the climate much further back than their human records because, you know, records of climate made by humans actually only go back about 150 years. Yeah, I didn't and think we weren't taking measurements a million years ago. Exactly. So you can look way back beyond the sort of time of humans. So you get this much longer perspective. And I think that's very important because um, one of the criticisms leveled at um, people talking about climate change is that, well, you know, we're only talking about a short period, you know, and the climate is always changing. So, you know, how do we know that that's significant? You know, it's warming now, but, you know, it might be cooling a little bit later on. Maybe that's just, um, a na these are natural cycles. And so what you can do with the ice cores is you can put the 20th century in a sort of much longer-term perspective. But the other thing that you can do with the ice cores, which is um, incredibly important, is that as well as um, the, the water, the frozen water in the ice cores, also trapped in the ice are little gas bubbles. And that's just because, you know, snow is fluffy, fluffy stuff. And as it falls it traps air in it and then gr gradually as it gets buried and compressed that air gets sort of um, compressed and ends up as little bubbles and those bubbles are a sample of the ancient atmosphere so not only have you got information about the climate back through time you've actually got information about the composition of the atmospheric of the gases in the atmosphere mm. you, you, you have some of the actual atmosphere Exactly. You've got, and the, the, the amazing result that came out of that was that um, if you look at the composition of the atmosphere, you find this incredible correlation between the composition, the, the level of greenhouse gases, particularly you know, carbon dioxide um, in the atmosphere, and, and the temperature, because you can get both things from the ice core. And so when the level of carbon dioxide is high in the atmosphere, that's when the, the climate is warmer. When it's low, it's colder. And you get these fluctuations, certainly through the past million years or so, where we've come in and out of ice ages. You know, there have been periods when large chunks of the northern hemisphere have been covered with ice sheets. And those are times when the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is very low. And then you get these periods between the ice ages, these interglacials, where it's much warmer, which we're in at the moment. And um, the level is, is much higher. And if you go back, what you find is that these fluctuations are um, very regular. And what, what you find is, for instance, for interglacials, which is, as I say, what we're in at the moment, sort of between ice ages, the level of carbon dioxide is, generally speaking, um, round about um, um, 250, 280 um, parts per million of, the, that's the sort of, um, of atoms of, uh, no, by, um, by volume, so that, you know, a tiny fraction of the volume of the atmosphere is carbon dioxide measured as, as I say, about 250 to 280 parts per million. And, and it's sort of, and then when you go into a deep ice age, it's much lower, it's about 140, 160 parts per million. And you can see this cycle, it sort of oscillates between these two levels. And then um, preserved in the ice cores is also the 20th century record, you know, the last 100, 200 years. And you can see this ramp up. So 
for the last 10,000 years, the level has been very, very constant at around about 280, 260, 280 parts per million. And then about 100 years ago, it starts to rise. And, you know, now it's nearly 400 parts per million. And you never get, in, in all the ice cores, you never ever, going back as far as the ice core record goes, nearly a million years, you don't get, you never get a value as high as that. Nothing like as high as that. And in fact, you can use other measures um, from fossils of the level of carbon dioxide or looking at um, um, chemicals in sediments. Um, can, you can, there are various techniques for looking at the level going further back from the geological record. And you find that you have to go back probably about 5 million years before you get to a period when the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was as high as it is today. So basically, these records just show you how much we, as through industrial activity, have taken the sort of, um, have changed the level of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and how different it is, you know, how, how the, the geological record it's taken millions of years to do the same changes that we've done in just a few, in, in less than 100 years. When you say the geological record, are you referring not to the ice cores, but... Yeah, going further back. It's, so the, the ice cores, I think the oldest ice core is about 800,000 years old. So, you know, not quite a million years. Do you know how far they have to dig down to get to 800,000 years? Well, that the um the, that one came from antarctica and i think i'm not i'm slightly guessing here but you'd have to go down a few kilometers huh. of ice and then get... so geologically do you what do you do do you um take cores out of the earth like out of the rock yeah exactly you you um the um you wouldn't do it in antarctica because it's the wrong sort of rocks but you can get it from um looking at um the Sea floor is one is an important place. So you drill holes into the sea floor and look at the rocks, the actual sediment accumulating on the sea floor. Or in fact, um, if you go back further in time, you can do it on land because earth movements have pushed up older rocks to the surface, and so you can see them exposed and you can look at fossils. For instance, I mean we talk about it in the film, but it's you know you can find in the Arctic region. You know if you go up to um, Greenland or the Canadian Arctic, you can find fossils of um, forests, tropical, subtropical forests that lived about 55 million years ago. So, for instance, the Canadian Arctic would have been um, covered in, in subtropical forests rather like the Florida Everglades all over the um, Canadian Arctic. 55 million years ago. So at that point in the past, would the level of carbon in the atmosphere have been even higher than the... Much higher, probably about four times what it is today, something like that. And so, you know, that, those are really big changes. And, you know, the, the, there would have been no permanent ice anywhere on the planet at that time. And in fact, probably be hard to find any ice at all <laughs> anywhere. And, you know, as I say, the Arctic would have been a subtropical region and and likewise with the the Antarctic, there would have been forests all over the Antarctic too. And what and, would the equator have been like? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, I spoke to one of the people I spoke to in the film, a chap called Matt Huber, who's a paleoclimatologist. Actually, wrote a paper on this. 
And he reckoned that the equator would have been so hot that in fact it wouldn't have been possible for life at the equator. You know, the equator would have just been unbearable. And so that he imagined a zone, an equatorial zone, which would have been almost like a desert of um, basically where it was just too, too hot for large organisms. They would just get heat exhaustion. It, would, it wouldn't be viable. But that's a controversial idea. I mean, it, the, the, um, I've forgotten now. I, he, I think he based that on various models that he did to sort of calculate what the average equatorial temperatures would be. They would be phenomenally high. I've forgotten what they are now, but, you know, sort of Death Valley type temperatures, <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> but knowing how resilient life is, it might well be that life could survive that. <laughs> I mean, I think the important thing to realize about global warming is that in some senses, um, it's good for life. I mean, life actually thrives life prefers living organisms like warm climates as long as they're not too warm and you know if you if you warm the earth on average by about say 10 degrees centigrade which is sort of what you're doing going back to 55 million years ago then you're making all the sort of um intermediate latitudes and high latitudes um really lush places you know you get very lush vegetation life thrives, you get very rich faunas and floras on the planet. So it's not you it's possible, as I say, that you might have this ultra hot equatorial area. As I say, that's controversial, but the bulk of the planet's actually doing very well. So it's not global warming's not a problem in the sense that it's making the planet too hot for for humans. It certainly isn't. And we know how to cope with temperature extremes. You know, we've got people living in at all latitudes, and we know how to cope with it. It's just that life on Earth as we find it today, and also our society, is not uh, has not been adapted to these different climates. We are very, very tightly adapted, and we evolved, basically, in a very sort of constant climatic conditions, which is... Um, something that um, is much cooler than what we're moving to. And so it requires major readjustments of life to, to deal with these increases in temperature. Now, if the, if the global population of animals and of humans in particular was much smaller, I really don't think it would be a problem at all. In fact, in some ways, you might even welcome it because all that would happen is that we just move, you know. Okay, the ice sheets melt, sea level rises. We just move inland a bit. Or um, if the equatorial regions become too hot, we just move northwards. You know, suddenly um, Canada becomes very attractive. And, but, that, but because the population of the planet is so big, you know, and we are so um, tightly adapted, you know, in terms of our food production, the types of foods we have, the relationship between population density and food production um, and water resources, it's, it becomes really difficult, you know, because you've got a planet that is really getting to the point where it can barely sustain the population, the human population. And then you're asking for a, a sort of an incredible chain, musical chairs, 
you know, where suddenly areas where people live, you can't live anymore and you have to move around. And so I think that there would be a period of, and I don't know quite what it would be, but I'm just guessing here, certainly decades, maybe more, of just complete chaos on the planet where humans tried to readjust to the new climate. I expect that even if humans could readjust, a lot of animals could not. Yeah, exactly. A lot of animals won't do it. In fact, the, 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 the animal world, it, you know, will just go through a huge mass extinctions. You know, the, the life on Earth will be very different. And, you know, eventually over geological time, new life evolved that, you know, adapts to the new climate. So that, that you're talking really about very big changes and um, the, the, the chaos that that's going to cause. And, and in some ways you could say, well, if it occurred over a very long period, perhaps it doesn't matter. You know, for instance, if we were say um, these sorts of changes in temperature occurred over, say, thousands of years, then, then you could say, well, then maybe we could cope with it anyhow because gradually the sea would rise, gradually we would have to move because of food production. You know, we could adjust. The problem is that everything's going to, it's all happening so quickly. You know, the, the temperature rises are quite, you know, in 100 years, they're um, going to be very, very significant. And um, even in dec decades, and, you know, you can't have a situation like, for instance, at the moment, a lot of um, Asia is dependent upon rice. And the reason that they, they depend of, um, they use rice is because rice grows very well in the climatic conditions of those countries. But in fact, um, global warming will move a lot of those regions out of the sort of rice growing areas. It'll actually be too hot for rice. And so you'll get um, large chunks of Asia where um, you've got very high population densities, where their major staple diet is failing. And, um, you know, you've got to react to that in real time. You know, you can't have people starving for 10 years. Um, you know, if there's a starvation, if there's a, 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 um, people starving, a famine, you have to react to it in, you know, on a timescale of months almost. And so, the, um, and likewise with um, sea level rise, you know, people are talking now about um, possibly as much as two meters by the end of this century. Well, you know, two meters um, would a lot of city like London. I don't think would be able to sustain a two-meter rise. I don't know about New York. Probably a lot of East Coast U.S. city, Boston. I was just reading the other day would have big problems with two meters. And you know, these these problems are coming at on the time scale of decades, and and so they're becoming really difficult to to deal with. And you know, if you only had one problem that you've got them coming all over the world, all at the same time. <laughs> so I think it's, um, that's where I think the general consensus is now, it's better to deal with climate change than to try and stop the, the, the root problem than to just try and adapt to it, because adaptation is going to be so painful. <laughs> so would you say that hypothetically, if humans were not the cause, if it, say, it was totally natural causes causing the temperature increase, that we should still try to intervene in that natural process. And well, that's the, 
very interesting question, uh, and I'm, I really don't know the answer to that question. It's an incredibly interesting question. Um, what would society do in, in that situation where they could see this happening? Um, but I think that what you'd find is if that was really the case, then it would have happened many times in the past because, you know, if the natural world is capable of these sorts of fluctuations, then they're not going to be one-off fluctuations. They're going to be fluctuations that will have occurred many times in the past. And so we will have seen them in the past. And in a sense, our whole way that humans live on the planet, as, as with the rest of life, would sort of be um, adapted to deal with it. So it wouldn't be something out of the blue. The, the, the situation we're finding is that the natural world is really quite stable. And so, you know, on a 10,000-year time scale, climatic change has been very, very small. You know, you can see that in the ice cores. That, uh, you know, you go back 10... In the last 10,000 years, the changes have been tiny. And then suddenly, in the last 100 years, things are really starting to change. And, um, and so everything, all life on Earth, is, is sort of... Um, adapted to the sort of um, to, to, to a stable situation. So I think that, um, you know, if, if it was just natural causes, you know, everybody say, well, we've been here before, you know, and, and the, everything about human society would sort of have taken that into account. Um, but I think, but I think my, the problem is that the hydrocarbons are such a fantastic source of energy. That um, hydrogen-carbon bond is absolutely fantastic source of energy. And, um, you know, life has discovered that. You know, we, we eat hydrocarbons. <laughs> you know, we, we're... Um, and um, so you've got... And so in a sense, the, the whole industrialization of, of humanity... It has come from this, the exploitation of this fantastic energy source. And so, we, in a sense, we, we are, our whole society is predicated on having all this energy available. And so you, it, that's what makes it really hard because you sort of think, well, here we are now with this population, this reliance on energy, and, but we can't use our main energy source. Or at least we've got to find a way of using it that doesn't admit... Um, carbon dioxide, and and that's a that's a big problem. Right. So maybe we can switch over to discussing what some of the possible solutions are. Okay. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that, or do you simply kind of focus on the analysis of what the current situation well, what, is? Well, when I when I was making the film, I was actually acutely aware that you know just talking about the problem and not talking about solutions is a bit could be a bit depressing and so I did actually um, spend some time trying to investigate ideas and the main thing that I looked at because I'm a geologist was really um, ways to actually use hydrocarbons without a, a net emission of carbon dioxide and um, this is carbon capture and storage is the sort of um, jargon terminology for it and the idea is that um, if you have a big power station that's burning oil or gas um, that, or coal, um, you, you can burn the oil, or gas, or coal, but what ha out of the um, flue, you know, the chimney, 
is coming, all sorts of gases. But what you do is you trap the carbon dioxide so that you don't let that go into the atmosphere. And then you compress it so that it's, it becomes liquid carbon dioxide. And then you pump it deep underground. And, you know, they're huge underground, natural underground reservoirs of carbon dioxide. In fact, many oil or gas deposits contain a very large proportion of carbon dioxide. I mean, just as an example, in New Zealand, the, there's a big gas field in New Zealand, and half that gas is, is carbon dioxide. So when, they, when they're actually exploiting the gas naturally, they just um, vent all the carbon dioxide, and they're only interested in the um, hydrocarbon bit of it for, um, to get natural gas. And so you can reverse that process. So you, in theory, you know, with old oil fields or gas fields, as we take the oil and gas out of them, we can pump back the carbon dioxide. And then that carbon dioxide deep in the earth ultimately reacts with groundwater and the surrounding rocks and, and you know, becomes limestone, which is, um, becomes carbonate. And, um, and it basically becomes rock and is sort of locked up for all time. So that's a sort of a, a technology that people have been looking at and, and, and has a lot of promise. And it's one that where the, the present oil industry, their technology can be used directly to try and store the carbon dioxide. The big problem is, is trapping the carbon dioxide as it comes out of the power station because um, what you do, what you you've got to do it in a way that uses less energy than you're actually generating in the power station because in some senses you're reversing the whole process of burning the fossil fuel in the in the first place because burning the fossil fuel creates carbon dioxide in water and you sort of want to reverse it but you want to do it in a way that doesn't use up all your energy and that's proving technically difficult but there are um, solutions to it which people are, are looking at and so I think that that's a quite a promising technology and that basically allows us to can carry on um, using hydrocarbon because there's basically no shortage of fossil fuel I mean at one point people thought that sort of global warming was sort of linked with um, running out of fossil fuels but I think the general feeling is now that um, there's an enormous amount of fossil fuel there. So um, it's not that we're running out. So w there's plenty of energy there. So we can find a way of using it without emitting the carbon dioxide. That would certainly help. And this carbon capture and storage is a promising one for that. You, you mentioned how that could possibly be used in power stations. Is it possible to apply that solution or will it potentially be possible to apply that solution also to gas burning vehicles or to the natural gas that heats homes? I think that would, it might be, possibly. I suspect that it probably um, it works better at large scales. My, I, don't, I don't, the answer, I don't, I don't know for sure, but my, the impression I get from speaking to the engineers that I spoke to, basically what I did was the country that's, um, one of the countries that's put a lot of effort into this is Germany because they've got big lignite deposits, which they're determined to use. What, what is lignite? It, it's basically a very low-grade coal, very dirty coal. It's horrible stuff, actually. It's the nastiest, most polluting type of coal you could imagine. And they've actually solved the problem of all the other pollution. So they've got... I've, I actually visited a 
power station in Germany, which is burning this, as I say, this really dirty fuel. And it, it emits um, no nothing other than um, air uh, from, from it. But unfortunately, the, the, so they, they can filter out everything else. That's quite straightforward now. So that the last pollutant, as it were, that they're trying to get rid of is the carbon dioxide. And they are, they're working on that. And, and it's, I think that that's soluble. You know, they're, they're getting to the point now where they're upscaling. You know, they're getting to industrial scale plants to do this. So I, I think that will happen. And what that, that will, I think that economically it probably works best with large scale plants. I'm, I, I suspect that with small scale things it won't. But what, what it means is basically that you can generate electricity from hydrocarbons, and then what you'd have to do is use electric motors for everything else, you know, so you'd have batteries and electric motors. So that's really would be what would power, say, for instance, electric cars. You might be able to get them from the electricity from power stations that aren't emitting CO2, and then power everything else through electricity. Um, so that, uh, the, the other, the... Um, in terms of um, renewables, I think it's of the ones that the green movement like. It looks to me, um, I think wind, my impression is that wind is a bit of a red herring, that, that wind, wind was something that people went with because the technology existed. You know, people have been building windmills for a long time. And so it was relatively straightforward to develop wind generation technology. But it's not a very efficient way of generating energy because basically the energy in the air isn't very high because basically air is very low mass. You know, it's not very heavy air. And winds on Earth aren't that strong. So there isn't actually a phenomenon. It's difficult to get enough energy out of the atmosphere without um, all these other things. You know, well, it, it's a, you have to have these fast wind farms which... Um, you know, do, do we want the whole planet covered with windmills? And so that, that I, I suspect that wind is limited. I think that tidal power is a really big resource. I think there's an enormous amount of energy in the ocean. Water is much heavier than air, so you can get a lot more energy out of the flow of ocean currents. And I think that will be developed a lot. But really... And how does that work? Is that sort of... Uh, well, it's just like windmills underwater. You just have turbines, basically. Okay. So rather than having a, a sort of a big windmill in the air, you have a turbine underwater. And um, Are people actually doing that? Sorry? Are, are those underwater turbines in the oceans actually, do they exist? Are they running? They, they only at a very experimental stage because the, the nobody, the, nobody seems to be prepared to invest much money in this. And... Um, the sort of general feeling is that you know nobody wants um, is that they think well let somebody else invest like for instance in New Zealand which actually has huge tidal resources um, they the sort of feeling is well we're not going to spend any money on it um, but let somebody else work it out and then we'll buy the technology off the shelf and that that's with a lot of the, the alternative energies that's been the general attitude like carbon capture and storage is another one you know we're not going to invest in it but if some let somebody else do it and then we'll buy the technology so it's a sort of um everybody's it's like a race where everybody's waiting for everybody else to start running <laughs> i don't quite understand 
because at the present economically, at the pre- my understanding is that there's not enough incentive on a, at a global scale to develop these technologies, and so um, companies just see it, and countries just see it as, an, as a net outlay. And um, so, but I think once once it bec- the incentives become stronger, they will people will start doing it. But I think the the one the, the one technology that is as it were could easily replace our um, energy from hydrocarbons that's sort of just sitting there is nuclear. But of course, nuclear has a very bad name, you know, and and uh, the the environmental movement hates nuclear and it's associated with all sorts of other problems. But in fact, um, you could argue, um, and people have made this argument, that the, the environmental problems of nuclear are, could be considered to be small if you factor in the environmental consequences of global warming, which is, you know, you burn hydrocarbons and you basically push the planet to a point where it's a sort of a crisis point. That's a big consequence, you know, which you need to factor into using fossil fuels. And um, nuclear has its problems, but it doesn't have that problem. And also the capability is is there and has been developed to generate the power we need. But ironically, most countries are backing away from nuclear. Like, for instance, Japan um, was really heavily... Um, moving towards nuclear. I think they had over 50 nuclear power stations. And after the, you know, the latest big earthquake, the Tohoku earthquake, um, where you had the, the big problem with the nuclear power station there, um, Japanese, the Jap- Jap- Japanese are backing away from nuclear um, very, very rapidly. So, you know, ironically, when, when the problem of global warming is really kicking in, and we need alternative sources, the one that's sitting there ready to to replace um, fossil fuels, everybody's moving away from. And of course, the long-term one that everybody hopes is going to be the big thing is fusion. But the trouble about fusion is that, you know, it keeps moving into the future, and whether it's a viable option, I I just don't know. It seems to be a long way off. As far as what individual people can do, what we've been talking about so far is kind of mass scale, what yeah. can happen. Uh, if you were able to, say, convince everyone on the planet to take some action themselves to have a positive change, what would it be? I, th- I think that, I, th- I think it's very difficult for any, I don't think there's any sort of particular action that, you know, like lots of people think, you know, if, if I only I didn't use so many plastic bags when I went shopping or something like that, or um, I, I cut down on flights, somehow that would change everything. I think that really the, 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 what ultimately the power of the individual comes through democracy in um, electing um, political forces and giving them the mandate to do the things that are needed to be done. I think that's really what it, that's where it boils down to. So I think that basically you can't make these changes without permission. Everybody, or, or at least the major, in a democratic society, the majority of people have to give permission for 
things to change. And so that's really where the individual comes in, is that the, the, the enough individuals have to give permission for a, a political force to sort of come in to implement changes. And if that permission is not given, no force can do it. No change can really take place short of, you know, unless you have a um, dictatorship or, or, or a sort of um, something done through a sort of small faction imposing their will on everybody else. So I think that, that, that it's through that permission and that permission, and that in a sense, you know, takes us back to the original motivation of this film was that nobody is going to give that permission unless they are convinced that there's a real problem there. And they're never going to be convinced until they fully understand what the problem is and how it came about and, and you know, why, why we know what we know. And so I think that informing people and educating people and, and, and communicating as widely as possible is an essential precursor to the wider population giving permission for measures to come in then i think in terms of those measures it requires visionary people you know society humanity's always been full of people with ideas who've come forward and proposed ideas and and if enough people agree to those ideas and agree to let them do it then these things can happen and and so but but on another level i think that you know because i sometimes when i've been been to many screenings of our film and um, people, especially young people, have come up to me and sort of said the same question, what can I do? And I said, well, one thing you can do at a small level is become a scientist, because I actually think that these problems are going to all be solved through science. Because science is really, there's nothing magical about science, it's just really an approach to our world which goes through um, where you make predictions about the future based on your understanding of the way the world works and if those predictions fail you you look at your understanding again to sort of to see whether you've got it right and gradually through almost a process of trial and error you get better and better at dealing with the natural world and 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 understanding it and seeing how it might change and i that's that's what we need and that's what humans are very good at doing and and so I think that I would see science, and it could be being an engineer, being a geologist, being any type of scientist, um, is 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 an important contribution to this. I mean, I'm just saying this because I'm a scientist. I mean, I think that there are many other aspects of walks of life too, which people need to get involved with. But I, I'm just thinking of it from you know my my perspective. <laughs> Uh, so what is next for you? This movie came well, out, in, your documentary came out in last year. Yeah. What What are you doing currently, and and what are you what are you seeing coming in the future? Well, um, this, what I've been involved with, and this is you know not just me, but um, other people involved in this project, um, it's been we've been sort of trying to basically. Um, um, make sure that our film is shown as widely as possible, otherwise there's no point making a film that nobody sees. And that's actually been um, quite an effort, really. And, um, you know, we've done that through, like, we launched it on Earth Day 
we've managed to organize last year we got screenings all over the world i've been to endless um, film festivals and talks and things like that and and what we're trying to do at the moment actually is trying to get it on television um, and th to do that it actually has to be reformatted because it's too long for it's not quite the right format for um, commercial television um, I would like to um, make an, another film whether I uh, and I, I've got it which would be actually to focus on the technological solutions and so basically I would definitely watch that one and and really talk to do the same thing but rather than just talking to climate scientists talk to engineers and um, people also policy makers and um, just See what you know. What is feasible? What sort of things can we actually practically do to maintain our energy supplies and 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 get rid of of greenhouse gas emissions? You know, what, what from really from, again from a sort of scientific technological point of view, and, and investigate these different technologies. Like, for instance, um, talk to engineers who are actually developing fusion technology and sort of try and use the same sort of approach get get them to talk frankly you know and you know what do you actually do how do you actually go about sort of building a fusion reactor or how do you actually go about um designing a turbine that is efficient at extracting tidal power or um what what's the next step forward in terms of capturing co2 from power stations and 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 just look at all these things and um show the community of scientists and engineers and and i say policy makers and 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 the financiers where where's the money coming from who's prepared to put in the money that are sort of working on on these aspects and with, that's what i'd like to do um but, it, but it's very easy to say that, but it's, it's quite another thing to do it because um, even, even though, you know, we made um, um, thin ice on a shoestring, you know, because I did almost everything myself, certainly in, in the early stages, um, it still is actually um, used up quite a lot of money. You, you just can't avoid that. And especially if you want to end up with something, a product at the end that's sort of, has a, a high enough sort of production values that you can get a wide audience to look at it. Um, you've got to you've got to spend money, and and it's really quite difficult to raise that money. And so, speaking of uh, the money issue, I did notice that you had a Kickstarter campaign. That's right. Yeah, we we are that's to try and raise money to reformat the film for. That's actually specifically for US TV, and we're about. Um, halfway through our target so um you know if um what is the url for that do you know off the top of your head um i can i can send it to you yeah okay and th that can also be found on kickstarter just by doing a search on kickstarter for thin ice it'll come up in the, the first yeah. result yeah all right uh a couple say two more questions if you could convince everyone on the planet to read one book or watch one documentary excluding yours obviously you'd like everyone to read that yeah. and watch that yeah. one um is there any book or documentary that stands out that you would choose well i'll tell you a documentary that um had a huge impact on me but it's it's, it's quite long in the tooth but it's sort of um 
makes one think about sort of our impact on the planet is um, Koya. Have you seen Koyani Skatsi? I've not you heard of that, that one. Oh, it's, it's a it's a very um, it's it was an incredibly it came out about um, thirty years ago, but it was a very very um, influential film, and it was basically um, was one of the first films to use time lapse extensively, and it's sort of time lapse images of the planet and of humans, and you just sort of get this feeling of where we've come to, you know, what the, the, we're such a sort of big thing on the planet. And um, it's also amazing images, but it, it sort of stays with you, and I think it's quite profound. Um, it's, what was the name uh, again? Well, I'm just going uh, it's spelt in a funny way. So, uh, yeah, it's spelt K-O-Y-A-A-N-I-S-Q-A-T-S-I. It's actually a, an it's an Indian Hopi word, and it actually means world out of balance, out of kilter, or out of balance. But it was a very um, influential documentary, and um, I recommend everybody. In terms of books, um, I think that you know, given what we've been talking about, um, I think that that book by um, Jared Diamond is quite a good book. You know, Collapse. He's, um, that was his, um, which is sort of a how societies collapse. And it's sort of about, you know, really um, what, what undermine, you know, you get a society and it seems very stable and, and, and then suddenly, the, the, very quickly, the whole the society collapses and there have been. He gives a number of sort of historical examples of it. I, um, I'm not sure that I would recommend that as the the best book on the planet that everybody should read. But it's it sort of um, fits in with this theme anyhow. So hmm. maybe those two things. I'm curious. Is there any book that stands out that's say totally unrelated to what we've been discussing? That, that oh, I th- oh yeah. Well, lots of books. I mean, I read. Um, fiction but I mean if you're interested in books there's a um, my favorite um, one of my favorite <coughs> authors is Jane Austen so I'd recommend the complete works of Jane Austen <laughs> and if you want my favorite one that probably would be Pride and Prejudice <laughs> okay in your field who do you is there anyone in your field who you especially admire and that could be the field of geology or the field of the broader field of saving the planet in general i think in terms of again um these ideas that i've talked about you know about sort of um the relationship between climate and and human evolution and um the rela- the connections between different parts of the planet I think um, Peter Molnar would be a, um, has written. He's a very eminent um, American geophysicist. Molnar, spelled M-O-L-N-A-R. Peter Molnar. He's just actually received a, the equivalent of the Nobel Prize. There isn't a Nobel Prize for Earth Sciences, but there's a, an equivalent for it, which is called the the Crayford Award, which is also given by Sweden. And um, he's written a number of very influential 
papers which sort of explore as explores some of these wider themes and so i i would certainly mention him uh and where can people find out about the thin ice documentary or or how can they well, watch best, it? our web our website would be the best and that is thiniceclimate.org that's right yep okay so uh that's probably a great place to wrap up great well, look, thank you for thinking of me, Justin, and I hope I've given you mater enough material for your blog. Uh, yeah, I think, I think it's been a fantastic conversation. Um, so for everyone listening, visit thiniceclimate.org. Uh, and Simon, I noticed you also have not only the documentary there, but a lot of other free kind of educational information on the site. That's right. There, there is a, there's a whole bunch of um, videos there which sort of explore in more detail the themes in the film because we shot I shot over a hundred hours of material and the film is only 70 minutes long so there was plenty of other stuff <laughs> that I'd like people to see but you can't make people watch a film for certainly when it when there's a lot of science in it for much longer than 70 minutes right um, yeah I'm, sh I'm sure it's hard to cut down those hundred hours <laughs> It, did. it took a long time. <laughs> and on thegreenpodcast.com, I will post all of the links to everything that we have discussed in this conversation. Uh, and you can also find out about future episodes on thegreenpodcast.com. And you can also find us on iTunes. Simon, thanks again. Thank you very much, Justin.